Okay. You have any questions about <clears throat> anything up to this point on discipling? No. Well, the first lesson we talked about what is discipleship, and uh, they gave us a definition uh, in the, um, the curriculum that said it is the intentional encouragement of Christians on the basis of deliberate loving relationships and training in God's Word. Maybe a little wordy. Basically, discipleship is when we point people to God's Word for their own growth and edification. Uh, when we go there ourselves and we are edified and strengthened uh, as a result. Uh, discipleship comes in many different ways and many different forms, but it always finds its source in God's Word, God's truth, and looking to Him uh, for our needs and development. Lesson two was about why we should disciple, why we should be engaged in discipling others. And we basically talked about two reasons there. One is for our own joy, the scripture says, and secondly, for the glory of God. So we do it for our own joy and for God's glory. Lesson number three, what about barriers and excuses? We talked about this last week. What keeps us from discipling and how can we overcome those barriers? And uh, that's probably one of the more impactful lessons that we may have in this because it's so pertinent to us when we think about uh, taking something like this on is that we're reluctant we have all these blocks all these obstacles in front of us that make us want to think that we can't do it or shouldn't do it or don't want to do it whatever it may be today we're going to talk about how discipling leads both parties toward holiness toward holiness bet you didn't think we were going to talk about that tonight did you <clears throat> What is holiness? It's one of those intimidating words, isn't it? <laughs> studied this week did the reading I'm impressed Bob's impressed I can tell I am Bob has never been impressed <laughs> he looks like he wants to add to that though. Well, I was just going to say read R.C. Sproul's book yeah. Be helpful. yeah but we don't have time to do that tonight I need a succinct definition <laughs> it, that is a good read if you want to read uh, a good book on holiness R.C. Sproul. He also has, uh, you might be able to find him on his uh, Ligonier, is it Ligonier.org website. You could probably
probably find um, audio versions uh, on there or access to them somehow <clears throat> if you Google it. I'll tell you what, you can probably find it on uh, Amazon Prime in video form, his teaching on holiness, probably. I know that some of his other series are on there. So if you have Amazon Prime, you can go there and look. He puts a lot of this stuff on YouTube. YouTube, yep, go to YouTube and Google uh, R.C. Sproul. R.C.'s dead now, but uh, he's, he's um, uh, a very solid teacher, theologian. And uh, he died in 2017, 18? Yeah. yeah, not long ago. He's with the Lord, enjoying his reward. Holiness. Scripture says, I'm, I'll tell you what, let me give out some scripture verses, some passages. I'm going to call on you to read these, okay? If you don't want one, just say no thanks, okay? Uh, Stu? No way, Okay. I'm shocked. First uh, Peter chapter 1, verses 14 through 16. It's actually three verses, Stu. Wait, what translation of the Bible do you have? New Stu version. The new Stu version. First Peter what? One. Chapter one, verses fourteen through sixteen. Okay, Vera, would you like one? Would you like to read one? No. Igor, you don't want to read one. Nadia, Yuri, Isaiah six, verse three. <laughs> you can read it in Ukrainian. Well, we couldn't understand you then. <laughs> Yuri, chap, uh, Isaiah 6, verse 3. Letitia, Psalm 99, verse 9. George, Isaiah 43, verse 15. Carol Harbor, 1 Peter 2, 4 through 10. You got more verses than Stu. This will add to your this will add to your reward in heaven. You got it? First Peter 2, 4, 3, 10. Yes. Bob, Hebrews 12, 9 and 10. Hebrews 12, 9 and 10. Kyle, Romans 6, 19. Phil, 2 Corinthians 7, verse 1. Carol. Hebrews 12, verse 14. Bill, Philippians 1, 9 through 11. Steve, would you like one? Sure. John 14, 15. Kelly? 1 John 1, 3 through 6. 1 John 1, 3 through 6. Brenda, you want one? John 5, 24. Brian, Mark 1, 8. Yeah. Mark 2, 5. That's in the same ballpark. Right? Okay. So you hold those places. We'll get, we'll get to them in a second. Okay. 1 Peter 1, 14 through 16, Stu. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. 
But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. What he just read says that we are saved to be holy. So we better we better know what the definition is, hadn't we? We better know what it means to be holy if that is our purpose. That's our purpose. Both the Hebrew and Greek words that are translated holy mean to be separate, to be set apart, to be set aside for something special. In other words, God is holy. God is set apart from creation from humanity, all pagan gods, for the by the fact of his deity and sinlessness. He's set apart. He's different. He says, just as I'm holy, I want you to be holy. I expect you to be holy. That's what we're working toward, your holiness. <clears throat> Isaiah 6, verse 3, Yuri. And one called to another and said... Okay. Who's who's saying that? The seraphim, the the angels. These are these are divine beings. Um, they are singing. If we went to Revelation eight, we'd find something similar there. The angels never cease to proclaim God's holiness. The scriptures declare him to be holy. Psalm ninety nine verse nine. Okay, and Isaiah forty three fifteen, George. I am the Lord, your holy one, Israel's creator, your king. The scripture, the word of God, the revelation of God declares that he is holy. It's essential to who and uh, essential to who God is, and therefore it's critical to us as believers, as his people, right? Holiness embodies the very essence of Christianity. Holiness embodies the very essence of Christianity. But it's not something that we talk much about these days, is it? It's not something that we focus on. I can remember as a kid, I grew up in a church. I had That was a great privilege and blessing in me. But I can remember frequently we would sing the first song in the hymn book. Holy, holy, holy. We sang that often. We don't sing about holiness. We don't think about holiness. We don't talk about holiness. You know, we've kind of, we've kind of, you know, made it relative to who we are. It's kind of what we do, try to bring God down maybe uh, and create Him in our image, the way we think. Christ has saved sinners to be a holy people. 1 Peter 2, verses 4 through 10. Carol? Jesus Christ. For in Scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. 
Now to you who believe, this stone is precious. But to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Hebrews 12, 9 and 10, Bob. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. Okay. So we're told, one, we are holy. We're saved to be holy. We're in a state of righteousness that Kyle pointed out. And yet we're on this pathway of sanctification where holiness is a process for us. We're becoming holy. We are holy. We're becoming holy at the same time. And God disciplines us in order that we might be holy. Just like you discipline a child, a grandchild, in order that they might be well behaved. That they might grow up and be moral and good people and productive in society. All those wonderful desires that you had for them. God disciplines us, he says, so that we can be holy, so that we will be holy like he is holy. In fact, he's unwilling to allow us to be unholy. He wants Christians to share in his holiness. God wants Christians to present themselves as slaves of righteousness, which will result in holiness. Kyle? Bill? Having therefore been promised to be the beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Okay, Carol? Make every effort to live in peace with all men and to be holy. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. Okay. Spiritual maturity springs out of holiness. You know, we, we have this idea, we have this uh, mindset, uh, expectation even, when a person is converted, when they turn to Christ, there's this um, experience, we'll call it an experience, that occurs for most, most people. When they come out of darkness into light, they experience this uh, joy that uh, is a gift from God over realizing that they've been cleansed and that they've been redeemed and that they've been accepted by God and that they now have forgiveness of sin and they have this promise of everlasting life. But we also know that that wears off pretty quickly, doesn't it? And 
As I was saying to you, life is like an EKG. Up and down, isn't it? It's not flat. It's not even like this. If your EKG is like that, you're in trouble, right? If it's like this, it's in trouble. It goes like this. This is life. We live in a broken world, and we still live in this world. So we're, we're working. God is working and using all these things to make us what he, into what he wants us to be. That's the path that we're on. He's taking the low points, he's taking the high points, and he is moving us upward on this trajectory to being sanctified. It is a process toward holiness, living up to what he's already declared or imputed us to be, which is righteous, to be holy like he is. This is what we're going to be fully and completely in the glorified state once we're with him in eternity. In the meantime, he's working through this process. So when a person comes to Christ, they have what we call that mountaintop experience where, you know, it's a great thrill and joy, but then pretty soon they find themselves, you know, they stumble, they fall, they, they sin again, and, and it just kind of wrecks everything, doesn't it? And you think, I've blown it. I wasn't really saved, you know, and the devil uses that against you, whispers in your ear and uses all those things. We need to be looking at that as these opportunities for God who is working in us, working out the salvation in us and through us, right? That, that what he did when we turn to Christ sustains us all the way home. The gospel sustains us all the way home. We can't produce holiness in ourselves. It, it's a gift from God. We work out our salvation. We begin to manifest this holiness as we move forward, as we mature in Christ as we're learning how these ups and downs you know the, the windows should begin to shrink they're not as severe in any one direction as we get our eyes on Christ and he's beginning to work these things out in us okay we're becoming more holy as we mature so it's a springboard for maturing they kind of go hand in hand right as we're growing closer to Christ we are, in essence, becoming more like Christ. We're becoming more holy. Scottish theologian John Brown <clears throat> said this, and I quote, Holiness does not consist in mystic speculations, enthusiastic fervors, or uncommanded austerities. It consists in thinking as God thinks and willing as God wills. Now think about that just a moment. Let me read it again. Read that again, the last part. Holiness does not consist in mystic speculations. You know, there's your experience, okay? Enthusiastic fervors or uncommanded austerities. It consists in thinking as God thinks and willing as God wills. So how does that happen? How does that happen? We, how, how do you, can you know what God thinks? He says that we have access to the mind of God. Through his word, right? So the more we're in the word of God, the more it begins to take root, take a presence in our own life, producing this holiness. God's mind and will are to be known from his word. And so far as I really understand and believe God's word, God's mind becomes my mind. God's will becomes my will, 
And according to the measure of my faith, I become holy. So as I'm leaning into God, as I'm learning to digest God's word and apply God's word and walk according to God's word as, as he's laid it out here and trust him, take him at his word, then God is working out this salvation in me and making more, me more holy step by step, day by day. So holiness is a desired outcome from a discipling relationship. You, you see the connection now? We said discipling, discipleship is helping people see the Word of God, go to the Word of God, learn from the Word of God. And that is where they're going to be conformed to the image of Christ. That's where the holiness begins to take root and blossom. As written on the board up there, that Brian's definition of holiness being the absence of sin, that only applies to God. Uh, in the here and now. In the here and now, yeah. And, you know, I like Kyle's. I'm glad he left the room so I can say this. I like what Kyle. Are you going to gossip about him now? No. No, I really like what he stated up here is that uh, we are in the process of becoming holy. That's right. That uh, it is not something that we have uh, achieved. Uh, actually, we don't achieve it, God achieves it in us. That's right. Um, so I, I'm, I've always been puzzled by trying to come up with a definition that describes my state of holiness. You know, for I feel that I am not holy mm -hmm. because I'm being measured against the holiness of God. That's the only standard that I can use uh, is his perfection. Well... You are, um, we might say, declared. Declared, yes. Gifted. Holy. Because when we, when we uh, confess our sin, when we admit that we're sinners and we are unacceptable to God as we are, mm -hmm. and that the only hope we have is in what Christ did for us at Calvary, that he died in my place, he paid for my sin, and now because he took my sin upon himself and paid for it on the cross, and this great exchange has taken place, and I get his holiness, I get his righteousness imputed to me, okay? I didn't earn it, I can't earn it. It's a gift, it's declared. God said, you are now holy on God's books, no, up here he's got your name and this is the book of holiness you know it's a book of life we would call it but in order to have life everlasting life in God's presence you have to be holy right so he just declared that but our problem is we still live in a broken world we live in broken bodies we live with broken minds and, and all that now that's our, that's our future. That, that's where we're headed. And so what he's called us to now in sanctification is working and moving toward the fulfillment of that holiness in a practical way. Yeah. I, I think what, what you just 
what you just what you just described, I must be having a stroke. <laughs> what you just described sounds an awful lot like justification. Sure. I mean, well, they all work together, don't they? Yeah, they do. We are justified. It's imputed to us. Mm -hmm. but, but holiness means the absence of sin. One day I'm going to be without sin. You are. One day. You know, I, I'm not now. But I am seeking to cooperate with God day by day and sin less. Every day I get up with that ambition to be absent, have absence of sin today. Okay? I'm never going to be successful. Even as much as I try to surrender myself to Christ. You know, when you take uh, 1 Corinthians 10, 13, or is it 31, that talks about uh, there's no temptation that's overtaken us whereby God hasn't made a way of escape. You know, and so I've always had this in my mind. He's given us the ability to avoid all temptation. But because we're broken, we don't, you know, we don't obey. We we always want what we want. The, the flesh is pulled. But I'm declared holy. So I am holy. Even right now, I'm holy. If you walked up to God and said, God, am I holy? He'd say, yes, in my, as far as I can see, because he's looking at Christ, who is my mediator, rather than me. My sin's been dealt with. Not just the sins that I've committed up until now. Every sin I ever will commit was crucified on that cross and paid for. So God doesn't see sin anymore in me. He sees Christ standing between he and me. But the practical side of it is, is that, yeah, I'm still living in this, this lost world, this broken world, and so I'm still dealing with the after effects, the aftershocks of the sin nature that still reside in me as well. And so I want to dismantle those. I want to shed those why? Not because I'm trying to earn my way over there. I already have that. I'm trying to live up to the family name now rather than get the family name. I've been adopted into God's family. I don't have to earn anything anymore, but I want to please my father, and I want to live up to the family name. I want to do righteous by the family name. That's holiness. That's holiness. That's, that's the pursuit of holiness. And that is... From where, you know, our maturity, our maturing in Christ and holiness travel together, coming out of that, they're coming out of the Word of God as we allow it to have its impact and change in our lives day by day. Does that make sense? Okay. Um, so, holiness is, is a desired outcome from a discipling relationship. It's not only so for the person being discipled now. Okay, if you commit yourself and say, "Hey, I want to go out and share the gospel with somebody when they come to Christ," then I'm going to commit myself to just start discipling that person. I want, I want to help them grow in this. I want to help them grow toward holiness. All right, I want to. I'm here tonight because I want to help you grow in holiness toward Christ. Right, but it's not just about your holiness. It's also about my holiness as the discipler. As I'm helping you grow in holiness, I'm helping myself grow in holiness. And if a discipler isn't doing both, he's not really discipling. Mm -hmm. That makes sense? Mm -hmm. Because, you know, you can't, you can't help someone get somewhere that you haven't been or aren't going yourself. 
in this business. You know, I can stand up here and tell you those things, or I can sit down and have coffee with you and try to tell you those things, but if I'm not, if it's not having an impact upon me, it's not really gonna prove fruitful in the long run. Right? Okay. Okay, so what are the goals for discipling relationships? One is obedience to God. This is the ultimate goal, obedience to God. Above everything else, discipling finally comes down to obedience to Christ's commands, Christ's words. Jesus said, if you love me, you will obey me. You'll keep my commandments. You can read Christian books. You can attend Bible studies. You can show up at church every time the doors are open. You can pray with mature Christian people daily. But if there's no real change, a growing obedience... You're not really discipling, are you? You're not really growing closer to the Lord. This is, this is the problem the legalist has. The legalist says, I go do these things, and I'm just checking them off my to-do list, my tasks for the day. But that person's not really growing any closer to Christ. That person's he's, he's being duplicitous in his, in his relationship. And he's not fooling anybody. He's not, he's not doing anything but harm because God knows, right? You can't fool God. The only person you're fooling maybe is yourself or maybe someone else. There are two reasons obedience is an important goal for any discipling relationship. One, obedience is important because God is glorified through the way we live. God is glorified through the way we live. Bill, if you'll read Philippians 1, 9 through 11 for us. Paul's letter to the Philippians. And this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight, so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless until the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ, to the glory and praise of God. Okay. If the way we live commends the gospel that we profess, then we bring glory to God. And the reverse is just as true also, isn't it? If the way we live doesn't commend the gospel, and yet we profess that it does, that's where we get accused of being hypocrites, isn't it? So we want to live, so the gospel, we commend the gospel that we profess that we might bring glory to God and provide a powerful witness to the truth of the gospel. The second, the second reason obedience is important is obedience is important because it is a mark of true Christians. It's a mark of true Christians. I've been asked this numbers of times through the years. And, and it's well, it usually comes from well-intended people who know someone, they have a family member, they have a friend, someone who claims to be a Christian but that person's life does not reflect that they follow Christ. And they'll say, you know, somebody, when someone backslides, how long, do they, how, long, how long can they backslide before you realize they're not saved? Something like that. You follow me? Uh, so how long? How long should some, can someone backslide until we recognize that they're not really Christian? They're not really believers. It shouldn't take long. It shouldn't take long. 
shouldn't take long. I, I, it's obvious that somebody can fall away, stumble, uh, be enticed by temptation, and, and start living for themselves. Um, I went through a time when I was younger uh, as a believer where I wasn't living for the Lord the way that I should. So, and I struggled with this. Was I lost or was I saved? You know, did my salvation that I thought when I was converted, did that really count? Did it really have? Why was I living this way now? How could I tell the difference? How could I know one way or the other? Because I had to struggle with this later on and decide. Was I saved and just living for myself? Or was I fooling myself into thinking I was saved when really I wasn't saved and I got saved later? How did I know? Uh, were you not enjoying your sin? The That's sin? right. That's exactly right. The bottom line was I sat down and I began to talk to myself. I did talk to myself. Um, you did or you did? I did. I talked to myself. I had a conversation with myself. And I said, you know, because I needed to settle this. I needed to know. Um which it was, and this is what I came to the conclusion of. When I, was, when I was in sin, I wasn't really enjoying myself. I kept telling myself I was enjoying myself, but I wasn't. I was miserable. I was absolutely miserable. The Spirit of God in me would not allow me to be content and satisfied in that period of rebellion. Okay? Now, how long did it last? As long as I could stand being miserable. Might have been a month, could have been a year. You know, David, after his sin with Bathsheba, uh, the scholars will tell us that for a year he was a pretty sorry man, you know. I mean, in a sorry, bad way. A bad, he, was, he was just in bad place, a dark place, for up to a year, maybe more. So timing is not the issue. The issue is... What's the state of the spirit within that person? And it's almost impossible for us to tell, right, looking from the outside. Sure. I mean, you might find a, a candid moment if it's someone you're close to and realize that that person is not really having the time of their lives like they're admitting. You know, there's, there's conviction going on. They know that what they're doing isn't right. And it's hard to make that assessment. But what I do know is if someone is not experiencing any remorse or regret or conviction, that person is lost. They're still deceived by the enemy in thinking that they can flip a switch or they can change direction, they can do these things whenever they want and it's going to be okay. Or they'll point back to, well, you know, he was saved and baptized back when he was nine. My mama always does that, right? Mama says, well, no, he was saved back when he was nine. Vacation Bible school, he walked down, he took the preacher, and they prayed, and he got baptized. He's saved. I've heard him do it at funerals. Somebody lives 50 years in a state of depravity, and Mama will say, point back to that moment when he made some sort of profession. But that profession didn't impact his life, did it? that's the true test is whether the life gives evidence of being pursuing holiness in any some way anyway give me something show me something that you're pursuing God here versus you know how can I gratify and satisfy myself 
uh, in this life. Okay, what do we say? Obedience is important because it is a mark of true Christians. Obedience springs forth from those who love God. Obedience comes from those who love God. If you don't love God, you're not going to be obedient to Him, are you? Jonathan Edwards spent a great deal of time considering all the marks of conversion that attend the work of the Spirit in the Great Awakening. In the end, he finally concluded that growth in personal holiness over time was the most universal and most reliable evidence of a true work of the Spirit. Jonathan Edwards. Some would say the greatest intellect produced in the United States, certainly in Christian circles and probably overall. He said, or he found, discovered, in the end, he finally concluded personal growth and and holiness over time was the most universal and most reliable evidence of the work of the Spirit. In other words, if someone makes a profession of faith at age 10 and their life shows reflects no change, spiritually speaking, when they're 110, then what's been going on for that 100 years? And his point is, certainly not a pursuit for holiness. Okay, who had John 14, 15? Okay, Steve. John 14, verse 15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Okay, we said that one right. An eternal, an internal change manifests outward. A real love for Christ results in great obedience. If we are true, truly, if we are truth regenerate, we have the Holy Spirit in us, then we're going to desire, we're going to desire Christ's will. 1 John 1, 3 through 6. Kelly? That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you, that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we So what does John call the person who claims Christ but doesn't do what he says? A liar. <laughs> a liar. So final test of Christianity. A changed life marked by increasing personal holiness. This means we should want others to live a life of obedience, showing love for God. If we have someone we're going to be responsible for discipling, you know, or... If we're truly in Christ, we want others to follow the same pattern, don't we? The same path. As disciples, we should want to help them grow in their obedience. It's just not, a, it's not just about the do's and don'ts. We want to see organic change. You can't force this, but you want to see organic change. We're called to assist, encourage, help one another in this pursuit, even though God is the only one who can really produce the change. So the goal is not behavior modification, but maturity in Christ. We should encourage holiness in the disciple. How do we do that? How can we encourage holiness in the disciple, the one that we're discipling? Well, it's important to dif- differentiate between immediate change and gradual change. How do we differentiate between immediate, what takes place immediately upon being um, born again? versus that which is a gradual part. 
Scripture tells us some things, talks about some things that change immediately in new Christians. John 5, 24. Very truly I tell you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be judged, but has crossed over from death to life. Okay. Now that verse gives us two or three things that happen immediately when someone comes to Christ. What? What are they? Eternal life. Okay. Death to life. So there is a status change in who you are. It's the new birth, right? For uh, second, second Corinthians 5, 17 says, If any man is in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things have passed away. Old things have passed away. New things have come. So along with that comes a new outlook and a new hope. I mean, you ever seen someone that maybe you knew for a while and they were kind of just, and maybe this happened to you. Maybe you saw this person in the mirror. You know, you're just going through life and it's pretty dismal. It's pretty depressing. It's pretty fruitless. And you're just wondering what it's all meant for. And when you came to Christ, everything changed. Your whole outlook changed. You had a new joy. You had a new hope. You had a new outlook on things. The things that did bother you don't longer, don't no longer bother you. It's easier to see it in someone else, but it may have been your story as well. Mark 1, 8. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Okay. I mean, we know that when someone comes to Christ, what happens? How does regeneration take place? Yeah, you become a new creature because the Spirit of God moves in, moves in to where that deadness was, takes over. So you have the Spirit of God residing in you now. So this is a change, isn't it? This is a big change. The Holy Spirit takes up residence. What happens with the Holy Spirit taking up residence? We, we alluded to it, spoke about it earlier. Sanctification, which takes place by some of the things Jesus said when the Holy Spirit, when I send the Holy Spirit to you, He's going to do what? Remember, He's going to bring, He's going to be a comforter, but what else is He going to do? Witness of me. He's going to witness of, of me. What else is He going to do? He comes on before you. Okay. Convict you of sin. He's going to convict you and reprove you of sin. This is what we were talking about earlier. That if you don't have that conviction in there, then that's a pretty good sign the Holy Spirit's not residing. The Holy Spirit's not going not to allow you to carry Him around and do the things you were doing before without saying, Hey, hey, you don't do this anymore. I'm here now. God is with you. We don't, we don't do these things anymore. And if that's not happening, He's not there. You're still on your own, right? You're still dead man walking. So he gives you a sensitivity to sin, okay, which leads to growing in holiness. Mark 2, 5. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sons are forgiven. 
Okay, sins are forgiven. Your identity changes. You're justified. You're converted. You have a new status. You have a new life. You have a new joy. Same, a lot of the same things. Disciples often work backwards. You know, we start discipling somebody, and what we want is we want them perfect right when we start, right? We, we, want, to, we want to get those bad habits out of there now. Get those cravings out of there now. I expect this, you know. Get rid of it. You know, give up your, give up your drinking and your drugs and your sex and all that other stuff, you know. That, that's the way we think, right? It's the way we think. Right or wrong, conversations with a lost person that asks me, well, if I get saved, do I have to quit drinking? I say, no. <laughs> do I have to move out from, with my, move out with, on my girlfriend? No. Do I have to do this? No. Do I have to go to church? No. It's not my job to tell them those things, right? <laughs> No, you don't, you don't have to do those things to get saved or when you, even when you get saved. But I'm going to tell you this, when you get saved, those things are going to lose their appeal and their taste. They're going to become tasteless. And it'll happen. You go into quarantine. You go into quarantine, that's right. I, I had a guy once upon a time and, and he asked me that and I said, no, you don't have to do any of those things. Because I, I could tell he was really struggling with this stuff, but... He'd heard these, these stereotypes. You know, this is where he was. Well, it's, my life's not going to be any fun if I turn my life over to Christ. i got to give up everything that's fun in my life. And I said, no, you don't. Because the, the bottom line is you don't have to give up anything that's fun in your life. What's going to happen is that God's going to change the things that are fun in your life. But I didn't have to tell him that. You know, when he came to Christ, he was living with his girlfriend. I didn't go home with him and said, all right, Susie, you got to pack your bag and get out. This, we're, this place is under new management, and you're out of here. No. I sent him home. He went home. You know what? He came back to the office two days later. He said, i got a problem. I said, what? And he said, i got to move out. I said, you do? He said, yeah, I can't be living with, I can't, we can't be living together now. With, I said, why not? I didn't have to tell him that. Why? Holy Spirit moved inside and began to tell him those things. Amen. Holy Spirit began to convict him of those things. Now, I'm glad to be there to help him piece it together and connect the dots as a discipler. But I don't have to be the enforcer. I don't have to be the spirit that brings the conviction. You, know, you bring the hammer. Somewhere in there we have to learn to trust God to do what God does. Right? If God can bring conviction to save a man, why can't he bring conviction to bring him to holiness? My job is just to walk along beside him and say, yep, you're doing right. Yeah. You say, you can't, no, I can't live with her anymore. Why not? Because it's just not right. And I said, well, then you, you know what you need to do? And he said, what? I said, you probably ought to move out. And you teach him to start learning to the, uh, listening to the spirit that's within him. Okay, got to move fast. I don't know, I cut the notes down every week and we still can't have enough time. Um... Okay, Brian. 
Uh, what are we what we are looking for is a changing character. We're not looking for, for perfection right out of the gate. We're looking for a changing character. In Romans chapter 5, I'm going to read this. Romans chapter 5, verses 3 and 4. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. Here's Here's the process of change that takes place in a believer. Not just, you know, the magic wand. A person is a new creature. They're a new creation. That happens immediately. They've been moved from death to life. God says, I've declared you righteous. But now begins this journey of living up to what's been declared for them. And these changes come gradually. They don't come all at once. So how do you encourage holiness in the lives of those we disciple? First, you need to pray that God would give you insight into their struggles with sin and wisdom regarding how you can be of help to them. Pray. First and foremost, pray that God will guide, guide you to have insight into the struggles they're dealing with. Second, make sure that as you discuss models of obedience in Scripture or various biblical commands, you also discuss how your lives compare. You know, share your own personal struggles and how God's brought you through those things. The Bible's the best diagnostic tool you have to help that other person see sin in their life. So use it. Encourage them to read Scripture. Things that have brought conviction or change to bear in your own life. Third, do not shy away from, the sharing, from sharing concerns you may have about various aspects of their life. In other words, if you see things in their life that you know are wrong or going to be problematic... Don't hesitate to call them on that. Just share it with them. You know, if you see temper, you see a lack of trust or doubt, those things creeping in or showing themselves, point it out. You're not, you're not trying to change that in them by your own power, but you're helping them see, okay? And by the same token, you gotta be, you got to be willing for them to share things they might see in you too, right? It's a two-way street. It's important to have these kinds of personal exchanges as you explore and probe where there appears to be a wayward attitude or action or speech. Fourth, to the extent that God is doing good things in your life, do not share away from holding yourself out as an example. Paul did this all the time. Uh, and I know we're not comfortable doing that. Paul would say, hey, do as I do. Walk the way I walk. You know, If you're going to say that, you better be trying to walk in the right way, right? You've got to be on the right path. You can't be out serving yourself and say, ah, do like me, you know. That's going to be, that's why Scripture says that there's a, a lot of responsibility goes with teaching the Word of God because you're putting yourself in that position. Okay, uh, fifth, try as much as possible to ensure that what whoever you disciple is under the authority of a local church, preferably your own, preferably the one you're attending because that's an important aspect of of discipling. Grow in holiness as the discipler. That's more we got. Oh, we're almost done. Hang with me. One way we uh, avoid unhealthy attitudes in discipling is by growing in holiness ourselves. So it goes back to what I said. If you're going to be helping others grow toward the Lord, you've got to be growing yourself. In this way, our actions support our discipling words. We give a helpful witness and not a confusing one. In John 13, 15, Jesus said, I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Now, I know 
that we can't, we can't provide the same example that Jesus did, but we can follow his example of giving an example, right? Of being an example for others. And that's what he was doing. He's saying, look, look to the example that I'm giving you. Look to how I'm walking and emulate me. And that's what Paul would say. Jesus told his disciples how to be holy and he showed them how to be holy. And we too must be holy in order to set an example for those we are discipling. Paul was quite comfortable encouraging others to follow his examples. We said he told Timothy in Titus 2.7 to set an example for younger men. In 1 Timothy 4.12, he again tells Timothy to set an example for believers. Okay, so what are some ways that we can make sure we remain holy in our own lives? I'm just going to give you, these are not exhaustive, not intended to be exhaustive, but just five for you to think about. One, regular church attendance. You know, be faithful to be in the church. The church belongs to God. The church is God's gathering of His people. You know, can you be saved and not go to church? I'm not so sure. I mean, if, if there's something providentially that hinders you, you know, if you're older and you just don't have the the physical ability to get there, or, you know, like we went through this time where we were shut down as a church, we were providentially hindered by things going on in our culture, that's one thing. But just to arbitrarily make the decision of not going is, that's not really in keeping with our testimony, is it, and our profession of faith. Regular personal time with the Lord. Regular personal time with the Lord. Regular reading about the character of God in His Word. You know, focus on God. See God in His Word. See what He's telling us about Himself, showing us about Himself. Regular accountability to other Christians in your church. Regular effort to serve others, especially those in your church. So being an example does not mean you're always going to do the right thing. You're going to stumble. How you deal with those stumbles, those failures, that's a part of the discipline. Teach them how to repent how to make amends, make restitution, and make a change and go in the right direction and learn from the mistakes or stumbles. Okay, 1 Corinthians 9, 24, 27 as we wrap up. Bob gave me a new Bible. I'm having trouble finding my place around here. You see the Bible, Bob? gave me. Isn't that nice? He told me he wanted to see it. See me using it. So, Bob. <clears throat> but I'm lost in I'll it right now. <laughs> check that off. 1 Corinthians 9, 24. Do you not know that in a race all runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control lest after preaching to others I should be disqualified. This is key to discipling, especially in relation to holiness. A.W. Tozer had a real disdain and uh, dislike for um, that strange thing he called the program. You know, Discipleship can become a program as any other thing in the church can become a program. Something that's just for conventional religious chatter uh, for our wholesale pursuit of happiness rather than holiness is what he said. For our bondage to the conscience of people rather than the bondage to God. 
That's what we're after when we're talking about discipling relationships. Okay, any question? Comments? This is not a rude group, so I won't ask for rude comments. Feedback. All right. Thank you. We'll do. We'll do it again next.